0: Bane Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama, presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available Eric Flint's Islands. Based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa. Set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama.
1: free radio hour
0: on the podcast soldiers out of time really ought to check their cell phone minutes before streaming video of the waterloo napoleon blooper reel treasure in the stars and liberty for one and all and her sister. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. All right now. Welcome to the Bane Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bane editor Tony Daniel. We have an interview with Steve White talking about his new Jason Thano time travel novel, Soldiers Out of Time, this time. Steve fills us in on the background to the books. This one is a dramatic climax for Jason's enemies, the transhumanists, and we get to see the finale of a story that's been building over several novels. And let me tell you, it ends with some pretty good fireworks. As you know, part of the fun of these books is that Steve brings in some well-researched and historical details. Well, this time he has some fun and brings in some well-researched and clearly beloved characters from... Well, a certain Kipling poem. We'll hear more about that in a bit. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. But first, here's the news. We have a fine pair of mass markets cut loose from the stagecoach and charging through the market square this month. These are Liberty, 1784 by Robert Conroy and Treasure Planet by Hal Colbatch and Jessica Q. Fox. Treasure Planet is a book set in the Man-Kazin Wars universe created by Larry Niven, but it is a standalone novel. We talked to Hal and Jessica about this in a previous podcast, and you can check that out. It isn't a spoiler to say that the title ain't no lie. Yeah, that's right. If you've read Robert Louis Stevenson's masterpiece... A Child's Garden of Verses, you're going to know where this book is coming from. Maybe also if you've read another book by Stevenson, whose title seems to be escaping me. Also out is Liberty, 1784. This is maybe my favorite of Robert Conroy's alternate histories. This one asks the question, what if George Washington lost the American Revolution? Would the cause of liberty and American statehood have been lost forever? We have a cool story by Robert Conroy and J.R. Dunn up on the Bain.com main page, by the way. That one is in support of the upcoming Germanica, which will be out in hardcover in September. So check that out also. Bob Conroy left that story, which is called The Teacher, incomplete upon his death last December. And we had military historian and science fiction novelist J.R. Dunn, who has been Bob's copy editor on many of his books, to complete it. I think he did a wonderful job. So Mass Markets, Treasure Planet, and Liberty 1784 are now available at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome Steve White to the podcast. Hello, Steve. Hello, Johnny. Steve White is the author of 20 novels with Bain Books. He is the author with David Weber, Shirley Meyer, and Charles E. Gannon of the Starfire series of novels. These include entries Insurrection, Crusade, and Death Ground, The Shiva Option, Exodus, and Extremus. The latest addition to the series, written with Charles E. Gannon, Chuck Gannon, is coming out in spring, and it is called Imperative. Along with many standalone novels, Steve's other Bane series includes The Prince of Sunset series, The Disinherited series, The Stars series, and now we have the series we want to talk about today, which... I, I we may call do we call it the temporal regulatory authority series officially or are we calling it Jason Thanu? The temporal regulatory authority series is too many syllables. I just call <laughs> it
1: the Jason Thanu
0: series. Yeah, that sounds. That's that's how I always refer to it when we're talking about it here in the office. <laughs> so that's the best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, these uh, include Blood of Heroes, the first one, Sunset of the Gods, Pirates of the Time Stream, Ghosts of Time, and we now have book five in the series, Soldiers Out of Time. So Steve, Soldiers Out of Time is really, it's a significant turning point for the series. It's got a lot more pure science fiction in it, for one thing, and it's also the the, the apotheosis of a plan by this your long-running villain, the transhumanist Stoneman. Can you give us an idea of of what Stoneman is up to as we began the the book?
1: Stoneman is the code name for a high level transhumanist agent who was believed to have been killed at the end of Ghosts of Time. It certainly seemed like he was killed, but as we all know, the persistence of evil is not to be taken lightly. <laughs> and now he's back in Soldiers Out of Time, and he has two big. Uh, Motivations, number one, to redeem himself in the eyes of his superiors for having screwed up in a major way in Ghosts of Time. And secondly, burning hatred of Jason. Now, ask specifically what his plan is in Soldiers Out of Time. I don't really want to go into that. Oh,
0: no, no. Yeah.
1: The first half, the first half of the novel, Jason and company are trying to find out what exactly it is he's up to, and I don't want to spoil that sort of detective story aspect.
0: Can you tell us about the day of the transhumanists? Uh... First of all, just some background on the transhumanists. What you have to understand
1: is that uh, for Jason's culture in the late 24th century, um, the word transhumanist uh, arouses the same sort of feelings in people that the word Nazi does in us. In my uh, future history, around the year 2130, the transhumanists take over Earth. This is a totalitarian movement which goes beyond previous totalitarianisms because these people wanted to use unrestricted genetic engineering and nanotechnology and direct neural interfacing and so forth to turned the human race into essentially a race of gods and monsters, uh, an elite of supermen at the top, ruling a bunch of specialized castes below. And they controlled Earth for three generations, after which the descendants of people who had escaped from their early takeover by slower than light into colonization returned to Earth because they discovered a faster than light drive. So they could enter Earth and spark the war and by the year 2270, roughly, the transhumanists are believed to have been wiped out. However, in reality, they have for some time been laying the groundwork for an, <clears throat> they're an extremely well healed underground organization, and they have the secret of time travel. So they are trying to uh, subvert the past, uh, setting up a whole bunch of time bombs of various sorts, secret societies, uh, delayed action, nano plagues. Ditto biological elements and so forth. Everything to come together on what they call the day, which uh, is when they're sometime in the not too distant future of Jason's time. They want to stage a comeback and everything sort of it's like a time on target salvo. Everything comes to fruition. Then, unfortunately, Jason has been unable to learn exactly when the day is going to be.
0: The, um, I was going to ask you about the Observer Effect later, but maybe now is a good time to at least outline what it is. and it, Because it really, in, in all of the Jason Thano books, it, it plays a major part.
1: All right. Basically, the observer, what the Observer Effect says is that you cannot change observed recorded history in such a way as to create paradoxes when you could go back in time. Or to turn that around and put it another way, anything you do in the past has always been part of the past. People in Jason's era have a saying, reality protects itself. If you go back in time and try to do something that would create a paradox, like shoot Hitler or shoot your own youthful grandfather or something, you just can't do it. Something will prevent you. Likewise, if you go back and try to prevent Something that is recorded, such as the death one, Not only can you not do it, you may very well find out that your own efforts were what caused it to happen. In fact, that has happened to Jason at one point in the series.
0: So the the observer effect can be rather deadly to uh, to those who flaunt it.
1: Yeah. Uh, yes. The uh, <clears throat> as I said, reality protects itself, and it doesn't greatly care how it does it. For example, if you go back to pre World War One Vienna and try to draw a bead on the young Hitler, maybe uh, one of those uh, gasoline-burning automobiles that they were starting to use then may run you over.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, to get back to the story, um, Jason, at the beginning, we uh, he's not exactly beloved in the novel's temporal presence. Time travel has been discovered after the Transhumanist Wars, right? Correct. And uh, this Temporal Regulatory Authority has been formed, why is uh, Jason has saved humanity's bacon time and again? <laughs> Why is uh, he having such a tough time of it with his bosses?
1: Now, in the, in the aftermath of the transhumanist episode, Earth's <clears throat> culture has reverted to an ethos that is almost Confucian. Basically, the place is run by a bureaucratized intelligentsia. And, uh, I was, one of my inspirations in this was Jack Vance's Demon Prince's novels, uh, The Institute in that. And we, we have this bureaucratized intelligentsia running or Earth, and, uh, the, the governing council of the Temporal Regulatory Authority for which Jason works are prime specimens of this. They're very, uh, cautious, they're very tradition-oriented, they're very uh, <clears throat> respectful of hierarchy, where just uh, he sort of takes them back. They're, they don't know quite uh, what to make of this wild colonial boy. And uh, well, that's one other thing, by the way, there's a great deal of snobbery directed at outworlders, <clears throat> colonial humans from other systems. It's a... Uh, it's sort of the way your typical Oxford Don looks on Australians,
0: and Jason is not from Earth originally,
1: right yeah, that's what I'm saying. He's yeah. uh, from a colony planet
0: that's where he got his military training, isn't it?
1: Yes, he was a, he belonged to the the paramilitary constabulary there on his homeworld of Hesperia, and he was recruited for the <clears throat> temporal service, which is the temporal regulatory authorities' enforcement. Arm. That uh, what his job has consisted of, for the most part, the opening of the series has been uh, taking parties of <clears throat> academics back into the past to resolve historical questions and disputes and so forth, and uh, gather evidence for their theories and keep them alive while they're doing it. Now, since the series started, the temporal service has. Uh, Expanded to have what is called the Special Operations Section, which exists for the purpose of hunting down transhumanist time travelers.
0: And Jason is is the director of that as the novel begins.
1: Yeah, yeah, yes, he is.
0: The other bad guys um, are the Teloy. Uh, can, can you tell us about them?
1: You know, in this fictional universe, uh, the Teloi are a race which had... A long, long time ago, genetically engineered themselves into uh, virtual immortality, and now their board is held. And uh, <laughs> around the year 1,000, uh, 100,000 BC, one organization of theirs, one group, one uh, social unit, uh, which is known by the term Zhonglu, which is uh, an untranslatable term, decided to. Strand themselves on some planet where they could be alone and set themselves up as gods. And since, of course, if you're going to be a god, you need worshipers, they, um, engineered a suitable slave race out of Homo erectus and thus creating Homo sapiens. But, uh, after a while, the natives got restless and started breaking away and spreading across the globe and uh, the Teloi got disgusted and, uh, Left their original area, which was in Mesopotamia and Egypt and the Red Sea area, and went north uh, and uh, became the the Indo European pantheon under various names. the The Greek is what Jason first encounters in the first novel of the series, Blood of the Heroes.
0: Mm-hmm. So the, though, the in
2: the
1: meantime, in the meantime, though the. Uh, uh, the rest of the Teloi out in the galaxy were become involved in a war with an amphibious race called the Nagomo. One warship of who's crash lands in the Persian Gulf, and they helped the early Sumerians develop civilization. This is uh, this, by the way, is all based on actual uh, Mesopotamian legend, the fisherman from the Persian Gulf, and all that. The eventually the Teloi and the Nagomo pretty much destroy each other, except for. Uh, Remaining military cadre of the deploy, but still a thing around the galaxy. Mad as batter, firmly convinced that they could have, they would have won the war if these uh, decadent, defeat, degenerates, uh, the rest of their species had only supported them.
0: So the gods are aliens, uh, and the transhumanists are <laughs> are trying to subvert uh, the timeline. Who are some of the good guy characters? What about Mondrago? Um,
1: Mondrago is an ex mercenary. In Jason's time, there's been a real comeback. The the Earth government, the the Confederate Republic of Earth, as it's called, uh, has a very liberal attitude toward mercenary companies who hire themselves out whenever the colony planets uh, need uh, any sort of military protection. This way, the Earth government saves itself the expense of keeping up an adequate military. Now, a a lot of these guys... Ex mercenaries get recruited for the uh, operations section of the temporal. And he's a perfect example. And uh, once again, the people who run the temporal regulatory authority are uh, highly uh, dubious about the types that get re- <clears throat> uh, recruited for this. So, as one of them puts it up in one of the novels, hooligans and roughnecks. <laughs> So uh they can basically they consider the special operations section uh necessary
0: evil. <laughs> yeah, you need those hooligans and rednecks sometimes. <laughs> um it, <laughs> another uh character critical to the story is Major Elena Rojas, um and she does not particularly trust Jason and particularly doesn't trust Chantel Frey Chantal Frey. Why is there this contention at the beginning of the book? Um it, I mean, it's important in the in the rest of the story.
1: Sure. Okay, Elena Rojas is a um, hard nosed military type who is in who is officially in command of this uh, joint military slash temporal regulatory authority mission, and she's very particular about making sure Jason is clear on that point and her being in charge. Now, Chantal Fry was introduced in Sunset of the Gods, the second novel of the series. Uh, At that time, she was an academic who was part of a research expedition that Jason was taking back in the past, and this was when they discovered the existence of the transhumanist underground, and Chantal defected. Transhumanist, but uh, later Jason was able to turn her back around, and since then she's been a series regular working for the temporal regulatory authority. And by the time of soldiers out of time, she and Mondrek or a big ol'. Elena Rojas knows about her background. In other words, she knows that she was a defector, so she trusts Chantal a good deal less far than
0: she could throw her. Yep, yeah, she was intimately involved at, with the um, with the transhumanist. For a short spell there, right? Sunset of the Gods, and she's been paying for it ever since. <laughs> so.
1: Right. She, uh, <clears throat> uh, yes, she's uh, she's been working to uh, regain the federal regulatory authorities' trust.
0: Yeah. Well, all right. As with any Jason Thaniar book, there is some cool time travel, uh, which you always expertly research, and and that's part of the great part of the book books. Um, this time it feels like you might have indulged some of your own influences in fiction, particularly movies. Uh, we have a trio of sergeants serving in the British Army as non-coms. Uh, we meet them in Afghanistan. They're over troops made up of a swatch of the of Indian people from India. and they have rather intriguing names, McCready, Carver, and Hazeltine, and a loyal Sepoy waterboy who wants to be a soldier very badly. Those names seem very familiar to me. In fact, I watched the movie last night in preparation for this uh, interview.
1: All, uh, all resemblance to Sergeants McChesney, Cutter, and Valentine are, of course, purely coincidental. Mm-hmm. I'm shocked. Shocked that anyone would think otherwise. No, no, actually. No, no. Uh, a long time ago, I was talking to Tony Weisskopf about what the context was. Uh, and that, Tony, you got to let me have a... Fun. Okay, but in spite, in spite of all the fun and games, I have to say that I did do my homework here, I did do my research uh, about uh, the British Indian Army, and what you have to understand, by the way, people use the term British Indian Army, but you're really talking about two different organizations here, <clears throat> the Indian Army and the British Army in India. The British Army in India consisted of uh, the British... Army units that were stationed in India at any given time, and it consisted entirely of Brits. The Indian Army was the army of the Viceroyalty of India. All its officers were Brits, and all its enlisted men, or other ranks as the British called them, were Indians. <clears throat> Although sometimes officers or non-coms would be seconded from the British Army in India to the Indian Army, and that uh, is what my uh, Three sergeants are doing, by the way. They've been seconded to a Sikh regiment here. Actually, the the distinction between the two armies was kind of blurred anyway because it was customary to take battalions from the British Army in India and the Indian Army and brigade them together.
0: But the basic idea is that uh, no Brit would be below an Indian in the chain of command.
1: No, 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 not thinkable that an Indian would be giving orders to a Brit. Yeah.
0: So, uh, Sadullah the Mad Mullah, something I've always wanted to say, and now I can cross it off my bucket list. Uh, <laughs> so what's the political and military situation in Afghanistan in 1897? Um, that great book, it seems like you might have had some uh, research using that great book by Peter Hopkirk, uh, The Great Game.
1: Okay, uh, of so all, I did not make up. I the mad mullah. Believe me, I didn't. I, I also did not make up General Blood, who led the expedition against him. The, this is all uh, for real. The, uh, <clears throat> what was going on at the time on the northwest frontier of British India, you had <clears throat> the Patans, who, who, which is the uh, predominant ethnic group of Afghanistan and nearby Pakistan today, living on both sides of the frontier. So somewhat in from the official border was what was called the administrative frontier. And in between that and the actual frontier buffer area, the British kept the peace pretty much by uh, just by <clears throat> subsidizing the local rulers rather than trying to rule it directly. However, they kept having problems with the uh, Tatans, a savage group of people with the long tradition of dating, and uh, they were also nominal Muslims, and they... Uh, or quite capable of uh, combining a jihad with a little raiding. Now, Sadala, the mad mullah, in addition to whooping up a jihad, he was carrying around a boy that he claimed was the long-lost legitimate heir to the throne of the Mughal dynasty that had ruled India before this came along. So he was able to get some serious stuff. Going up there on the northwest frontier, and uh, this is the setting of the novel. An punitive expedition against his followers
0: is um just to uh, I don't know if if this is um is uh the movie Gunga Den historically accurate with um with what those guys are after um no,
1: no, no the, the movie Gunga Den, no the, no uh there were not, there never were any tugs that I know of on the northwest frontier, and those people up there were Muslims. There were were some elements of that movie that were accurate. For example, as I said, the typically uh, British Army and Indian Army units would be brigaded together, and that was obviously the case there, and you had these three sergeants who obviously had been seconded to a native Indian regiment. So it wasn't completely off the wall, but the uh, as for the actual conflict that was going on, that, that was pretty much uh, a figment of the movie maker's imagination.
0: So we're gonna. We also meet an interesting young man who's gonna make quite a difference in in his own future and our past. Um, I mean, it. I want to just say that that Winston Churchill's in the book just to get people to want to read it. Um, He he did begin his career as a Cracker Jack war correspondent, didn't he?
1: Yes, he did. In those days, junior officers in British regiments, which he was at the time, wanted to take part in as many campaigns as possible. This is how they brought themselves into notice. So often when their own regiment wasn't engaged in a campaign, they would try to get seconded to another regiment that it was. And sometimes they'd even go on leave and take part in other people's wars. And uh, one of the ways they could do this was as correspondents. Um, and the junior officers did that in those days. They'd write up reports and send them to the Times of London. And Churchill had already done that with the Spanish war against the Cuban insurgents in Cuba. This is a case of running off and, um, and getting involved in somebody else's fight. And he did, in fact, do it with General Bloods. Expedition against Sadala the Mad Mullah, which is where we <laughs> meet him, and later on he did it again in the Boer War, and that time he was captured and was with POW for a time and pulled off a spectacular escape, which made him a national hero.
0: Well, you have you have a lot of fun with the observer effect when historical characters come in come into the picture in in the in these novels, mm-hmm. because that's the that's the real gist of the observer effect, since so many people. Ha, know about that history. It it really can't change. If you... Right, this is a... <clears throat> it's really dangerous being around uh, well-known historical personages, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it, it limits you. <clears throat> now, the, this is, by the way, is why the transhumanists have been doing their doggery on the northwest frontier of British India. This was a pretty remote place, and uh, <clears throat> just the sort of place they like to operate in. Now, when uh, my characters encounter Churchill, this sort of complicates their lives, because anything they do that involves him is going to impinge on recorded history, which means they're going to bump up against observer effect problems. But uh, fortunately for them, they come up with a way to talk him into leaving fairly soon. Of course, they uh, <clears throat> thereafter, some more bad things start happening to them, but that's the breaks.
0: Yeah. Well, Jason... Uh has some similar problems with uh Captain Morgan in in uh, Pirates of this time stream as I recall. Uh, so, there's an agent somebody else who's... Go go ahead.
1: No 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 I was just going to say that's uh, another fairly well documented figure. <laughs> Henry Morgan.
0: Yeah, no doubt. The
1: at the same it's though sometimes sometimes Jason could actually make tactical use of this and if he as long as he's stuck close to Morgan the transhumanists couldn't simply uh, swoop down out of the sky and vaporize him with laser beams or anything like that because uh, history says that Morgan did not get vaporized.
0: Yeah, that's why Jason is the head of uh, the Special Operations (laughs) Unit, because he can figure out stuff like that. Um, (laughs) Yes, he's he's very good at it. (laughs) He's had enough practice by now. There's an aged alien detective. What can you tell us about him? Okay,
1: Jason and company go to a planet with an alien civilization as part of their investigation, trying to find out what Stoneman is up to. Now, this uh, alien civilization that I created, this alien race, I think a lot of people who read this will have no trouble recognizing my historical model for it, which is China during the time of the Taiping Rebellion. Now, I, I needed a character sort of like my aged detective here, so you, you can call in an homage or a theft, as you will. <laughs> I based him on Master Lee from Barry um uh, Master Lee novels, which are set, <clears throat> if you haven't read these, read them. Now, these are set in a version of Tang Dynasty China, where the supernatural Chinese version works. And, uh, these are fantasy detective stories. Master Lee is a disgraced former Mandarin who has set up uh, as a type of private detective, and the, the, the novels are told by his not terribly bright assistant, number 10, Ox. Now, I know the business of having a brilliant detective stories told by his not very bright assistant it may not seem entirely original, but it works very well. And uh, so basically I put Master Lee and number 10 Ox into alien garb here, and of course I acknowledge the theft in my uh, author's note at the end, but uh, I just had to do it. I love these novels so much, and I wish Huart would write more of them. He only wrote three of these novels, then let it drop. And as far as I can tell, nobody even knows where the man is or if he's still alive.
0: What is the writer's name again?
1: Barry Hurt, Hughart,
0: H U G H A R T. When did the Master Lee books come out? 1980s. Yeah, oh, so they're pretty recent. I was, For some reason, I was thinking perhaps Charlie Chan, but uh, it's a more recent vintage.
1: <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, they're, uh, yeah they're, these novels are a lot of fun. Um, the, the, and uh, it can be a little startling sometimes. No, the author. That's a real thing about cannibalism. I mean, one of these novels, I I guarantee somebody is going to get eaten, and the preparation of the meal will be told in great detail. I I challenge anybody to read one of these novels and then go eat at a Chinese restaurant.
0: (laughs) Oh, dear. So, um... Not too much more to uh, that we can really say about soldiers out of time because there's a lot of uh, time bombs, as it were. There's a lot of revelations in the in the book. It, mm-hmm. Did you write this as a um, it, it it's sort of the Stoneman climax, right of that subplot? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Did you want to consciously get more out of uh, pure historical time travel book and and get some science fiction elements in? Or was it just demanded by the story?
1: I think I think that after... Well, as I mentioned earlier, I'm working right now among... Other, well, actually, I'm working on two things now. But I am working on the next Jason Thano novel, tentatively entitled The Girl from Eridu. And this one is also something of a departure. And after that, I think I'm going to go back... Sort of get go back to basics in terms of historical time travel because the and the girl from Eridu is sort of scattered around. He goes to Jason goes to 1978. He also goes to 4004 BC. The, it's sort of a major hunt to discover just what the transhumanists are up this time.
0: It's good.
1: so I think so I think that in the future I'll probably get back to. Uh, Specific and more or less well documented historical setting, and of course there are uh, any number of settings I uh, wouldn't mind playing with.
0: No doubt. You're also um, you and uh, Chuck Gannon have been working on more Starfire novels. Are you? Is the next one in progress?
1: Yes, it is. That's the <clears throat> that's the other thing I'm working on. But you now, you guys, at Bain, of course, already have. Um, <clears throat> imperative
0: that's going to be out in spring in
1: the spring mm-hmm. and right now chuck and i are working on the sequel to that oblivion now uh these uh these novels uh follow directly after imperative excuse, excuse me follow directly after extremis which is the last starfire novel that chuck and i wrote this uh, carries that story a bit further on now Extremis. A certain number of readers uh, complained that uh, the um, the war in Extremis, although it was quite a nasty war, it was uh, somewhat localized. It was uh, This wasn't a threat to the existence of the human race, like, for example, when Dave Weber and I wrote uh, <clears throat> In Death Ground and the Shiva Option. Uh, I mean, there was a lot on the line here. The, uh, where they were fighting these uh, arachnids who were uh, basically out uh, eat the entire human race, and, uh, whereas uh, things weren't quite as high stakes in extremists. So uh, Chuck and I took this to heart, and I think I can say without fear of contradiction that when people read Imperative and Oblivion, nobody will be able to complain that this is not high stakes. <laughs> in fact, it's going to come as quite a shock, and some of the stuff that goes on is going to come as quite a shock to long-term Starfire
0: readers. Excellent. Well, the stakes are always high in the Jason Thano books because the very the present is on the line or at least um, uh-huh. the immediate future of of our time travelers because they haven't observed their immediate future. so that's the that's the time that the uh, right. the bad guys can spring right. their plan, right? That's one
1: of the features of the well one of the ground rules of time travel that I'm using in this series. You, there can be no travel into your own future. The future, in an absolute sense, doesn't exist until it's happened. The the present is a constantly expanding wave front, beyond which there is nothing. The so all you can do is go back in time with some difficulty, and you're you're linked to your own time once you uh, restore your Temporal energy potential, as it's called, you snap back to where you came from.
0: So, does that explain why? Because I've wondered if there were time travelers in the future of Jason and company, uh, who they haven't seen. Is there? Is it impossible for them to interact?
1: It's not impossible. The um, <clears throat> one other thing, one other ground rule, is this: it takes a lot of energy to temporarily, to temporarily displace. <clears throat> An object such as a human being and the initial energy surge is such that the effect doesn't become controllable until you've gone back at least 300 years in other words if you're going to travel back in time you have to travel back at least 300 years this eliminates some complications for example it normally prevents you from um, encountering your own younger self of course it's possible (laughs) to go back and encounter yourself if you yourself have previously, in, your, in terms of your own consciousness, gone back in time, mm. then later you go back in time again to the same Magyar, it's, it's impossible to encounter yourself there. And Jason, at one point, in uh, Pirates of the Time Stream, does in, in fact see himself. This is something that's never happened in the history of the Temporal Regulatory Authority. And in The uh, in the Girl from Eridu, it becomes a little bit of a problem because uh, Jason is going back... To Rome in 1978 where there has already been an expedition there. In fact, that's uh, how they found out that the transhumanists were involved with the Pope's death. So uh, so this can get <clears throat> a little hairy. And, and yes, there is no theoretical reason why people more than 300 years in Jason's future couldn't come back to his period. So for all Jason knows, there are future time travelers running around
0: one other thing about the book that I wanted to mention is that you have a you have a really rousing um, uh, attack scene to open it up that I really liked the writing of. Um, what are some of the weapons that you've uh, created for uh, for our future folk?
1: I'm glad you liked that scene. It's a, <clears throat> that too was sort of a departure for the series. Uh, instead of the traditional deceptively tranquil first chapter, I opened this one with a bang. And when I say a bang, I mean up to and including tactical nukes. As for the weapons, well, as you'll recall, in that scene, <clears throat> I have the uh, <clears throat> transhumanists using nano weapons—basically, use <clears throat> a bunch of nano machines that uh, uh, turns everything to goo. You know, it <clears throat> this is the sort of thing that uh, there is a cultural taboo against in Jason's culture. In, as I said. Uh, in the course of the battle. Um, in Jason's society, possession of these things is a felony. Use of them on humans is a capital felony. Jason and the good guys in this have a more conventional set of weapons. Uh, the good guys in this case being what is called the Internal Defense and Response Force. their IDRF. This is a military force You were talking about uh, Major Elena Rojas earlier. This is what she belongs to. This is a military force that the Confederate Republic of Earth can use for emergencies. Otherwise, it's almost hamstrung because its member states, various nations, have jealously maintained control of most of the war-making potential, especially weapons of mass destruction. So, But... This uh, after the transhumanist uh, episode, uh, human society in this period is very sensitive to the threat of internal subversion, so they allow the confederal republic to accept its force, and they have a fairly conventional set of science fictional weaponry. They, but uh, when they need it, they can use powered combat armor, which is what they're using at the beginning, and they have. Uh, Plasma weapons as a directed energy weapons that uh, heat a bolt of hydrogen to near fusion temperatures and send it along with a laser guide beam and, and this can do quite a lot of damage and they uh, and they also have uh, gauss weapons, basically uh miniature mass drivers now the the mercenary organizations that I mentioned earlier, what they use is limited to what the local culture has got <clears throat> and this is sort of a bone of contention in the novel because a lot of the mercenaries are operating in the alien civilization I mentioned the Xero who they're they're in they're combating a rebellion there so they're hiring mercenaries but the mercenaries aren't allowed anything that would destabilize the local culture too much basically uh, nothing that would fall under Clark's law
0: mm-hmm so, the escalating brush war kind of uh, scenario.
1: Yeah, pretty much. The uh, <clears throat> and when the Jason goes back in time to combat the transhumanists, <clears throat> he's been able to get the high bound leadership of the temporal regulatory authority to allow them. Some modern weapons. Uh, you know, his argument is basically, look, the transhumanists have no scruples about this sort of thing. They're taking modern stuff back into the past, and you can't expect us to go back there and fight them with swords and spears or whatever it is the locals are using. So they put a great deal of the ingenuity into coming up with disguised versions, like <clears throat> lasers inside what looks like a walking stick and that sort of thing.
0: Well, there's like there, the, it seems like that Jason is fighting two battles. A lot of times, he's his bosses who um, just don't understand the threat that he sees and the the actual threat.
1: Pretty much, yes, um, yes, he um, <clears throat> he is sort of a semi ally, in <clears throat> although they accept <clears throat> on the semi part in the form of Kyle Rutherford, his immediate boss, Rutherford is the operations director of the uh, Temporal Regulatory Authority. Uh, To put it in terms of a corporate organization, he is the CEO and the the governing council of the authority is the board of directors. So he reports to them, but he has a lot of mm, latitude in what he does in terms of ordinary operations. Now, like he and he, He also is a typical specimen of the sort of people who run Earth in this culture, which – so he has the full set of irritating affectations when it comes to dealing with an outworlder like Jason, like uh, pretending to not be able to remember which colony system is which. This is just uh, something they do to needle outworlders, and things like this. So they don't always get along, but – Uh, When push comes to shove, Rutherford can usually, not always, be relied to stand up for Jason uh, against the council.
0: Yeah, thank God, or whatever controls history. (laughs) Well, the book is Soldiers Out of Time by Steve White, and it is now at booksellers everywhere. Uh, Steve, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than a 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel, of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky.
2: Chapter 7 The Center for Disease Control and the World Health Organization are assembling an unprecedented group of both professional and amateur synthetic biologists in a desperate search for a cure to the ongoing pandemic. The FBI is searching for a white or Hispanic male in his early 20s, believed to have last been seen in the Miami area in regards to the deliberate spread of the Pacific flu virus. With the Pacific flu widespread throughout the Pacific Rim, science reporter Timothy Carl has a report on Chinese authorities' battle against this deadly disease. Finally, some good news is the World Health Organization last night reported a breakthrough in curing the Pacific flu pandemic. Any idea what he wants? Bateman asked. All that he knew was that Curry had asked for a meeting. Given that the WHO had announced a breakthrough in vaccine yesterday... He'd been expecting the call earlier. No, sir, Tom said. He'd called Curry last night as soon as he got the word. Curry had been tight-lipped and just asked for a meeting the following afternoon. Dr. Curry, Bateman said into the screen. Still hold up, I see. Yes, sir, Curry said, licking his lips. We're all agog on how you're going to save us, Bateman said. I'd expected the call earlier. Are we secure, Mr. Smith? Curry said, temporizing. We are, Tom said curiously. It's only the three of us. I'll have to trust that, Curry said. When I covered all the stuff about attenuation in the previous meeting, there was a reason the WHO was kind of ahead of itself on announcing a vaccine. So you can't make a vaccine? Bateman said, sitting back, his face hard. That's not good news. Just, Curry said, let me get there. There is a vaccine. It's just a matter of a sort of big logistics issue. The primary vaccine method has been known the whole time. We can do a flu vaccine given time in our sleep. But the flu itself is beside the point at this point. We need a vaccine for the secondary expressor. We could build a protein sequence mimicking the binding sites for that. They're working on it. And it will take another two months, minimum. Then there's certifications. Doctor, we don't have two months, Tom said. I'm not sure we have two weeks at the rate this is spreading. I'm getting there, Curry said. I need an answer, Doctor, Bateman said. You want me to take this slow, Curry said. The secondary expressor turns out to be a lot like rabies It's definitely based upon it About 30% of the same RNA Similar protein coat It infects nerve cells Primarily central nervous system The spinal cord and brain That's where you find the Face it, the zombie virus Understood, Bateman said And the attenuation vaccine? I think you mentioned lab rats. We got you quite a few. I suppose we can find some of the virus, he said, looking at Smith. I'm sure, Tom started to say. I asked for them, assuming that I could work with them, Curry said, grimacing. They're basically just eating up rat food. Although you probably should get some rabbits or monkeys to use as cover. The thing is... Pasteur and CDC have both confirmed that this pathogen only affects higher-order primates. That's the only source of the virus bodies to attenuate. Oh, Tom said, leaning back and his face closing down. Oh, bloody hell. Higher-order primates, Bateman said, slowly and carefully. That includes various... Monkeys, if you will, Dr. Curry said, gulping. Rhesus monkeys would do. Green monkeys, possibly. Rhesus, definitely. Possibly chimps. Probably chimps. The problem being the supply of those is already being eaten up by the government for critical personnel. Has been eaten up. Critical personnel and research. There's just none. None available. That was what I was checking. Thus the logistics problem. Of course, Homo sapiens is a higher order primate, Tom said, his face hard and cold. And yes, Curry said, Homo sapiens would, yes, we are. Thank you for that information, Dr. Curry, Bateman said. Besides, said Tenuble what do we need to make vaccine? It's been a week, sir, Curry said. Everything is installed and ready to go. As soon as I can get some virus bodies, I can start cranking out the vaccine. Understood, Bateman said. And again, thank you for your assistance in this time of difficulty. Thank you, Curry said, closing the connection. Now I understand his insistence that this conversation was secure, Bateman said. And it never occurred. Yes, sir, Tom said. Dr. Curry needs some materials to produce the vaccine, Mr. Smith, Bateman said, standing up. I'll detail a significant budget for this. Are there any questions? No, sir, Tom said, standing up. I'll take care of it, sir. You understand that this never happened, Tom said, suiting up. Although he'd been told he'd never have to take care of something, he'd also been hired for his proven ability to plan ahead and part of planning ahead was making sure that he had backup in case his bosses were wrong. Jim Kapman Kaplan and Dave Gravy Durante were part of that planning. The term was functional sociopath. Both were formal special operations. Both had combat experience. Both enjoyed combat. People other than those close to them weren't really real. Tom understood the mindset. He had the same type of brain. Having one was almost required to be in elite military units. It didn't mean any of them were serial killers. He'd had them go through advanced polytests to ensure that they weren't going to be an issue as employees of the bank. They'd never done so much as assault that wasn't under controlling legal authority. They kept their killer side under control by tight discipline. They just had the potential. In fact, they just really needed a good reason Like, say, fighting terrorism. Or saving their bosses and family from a disease. Your bonus is one out of fifty doses, Tom said, putting on the gloves of the hazmat suit. The warehouse was a nondescript property in alphabet soup that the bank had repossessed. It was ostensibly untenanted. Setting up the lab for this mission had been easy enough. We get vaccinated right after Dr. Curry. Curry, us... Biteman, and then down You can use the doses for anyone you want And you get two seats on the evacuation plan Understood, sir, Kaplan said Pulling on his own gloves and holstering the taser Although I can actually see some value to this Better than NYPD's answer The afflicted temporary holding facilities had already made the news And the term hellhole was generally used I'd rather be turned into vaccine than be put in that place, Durante said Holstering a backup sidearm in case the taser didn't do the trick And since we're bonding, that's my official answer If I go full zombie, make me into vaccine Will do, Tom said, getting an odd sensation It took him a moment to recognize it It was the feeling of coming home This, really, was where he was designed by nature to be in a team on the sharp end. Same here. All for one and all that, Kaplan said, grinning through his mask. I'm in. Strip my spine and put my head on a shelf. I'll do that for you, Cap, Durante said, mock sobbing. I'll put your head on my mantelpiece and toast you once a year on the anniversary of you becoming a zombie. A swear man. Let's load up, Tom said opening the door of the heavy emergency response vehicle, before you Yanks start kissing and stuff. They rolled out of the warehouse and down Avenue B, maneuvering carefully through the traffic. The one positive to the disaster was that traffic was getting lighter and lighter as people found anywhere but New York to exist. Everybody knew that no matter what the government was saying, things were getting bad, and getting bad fast. They didn't even get to Houston Street before they had their first customer. Corinda was cursing her choice of delis for lunch and blessing her decision to wear walking shoes. If she'd been in heels, the zombie would already have caught her. Unfortunately, it seemed to be in better shape than she was and was obsessive in chasing one Corinda Carfora, wildcat marketer. She'd been running nearly two blocks, and it wasn't even swerving for other pedestrians. She'd turned the corner, for God's sake. And being New York, nobody was so much as giving a second glance to a naked man chasing a woman down the street, much less helping. You're passing fatter people, you idiot, she screamed, giving a glance over her shoulder. Still there. This was ridiculous. The other mercy was that lunchtime walking traffic was light in Alphabet City, so she didn't have to dodge much, but she was wearing out. Look, that guy, he's fat, eat him. Never a cop. That hoary adage was belied when she was halfway down the first block of Avenue B. A big black truck, marked Biological Emergency Response Team, swerved into traffic with blue lights on and stopped blocking half of northbound to a blare of horns. Puffing, she swerved toward it as a pair of men in moon suits and masks exited. One of them waved for her to pass between them as they both pulled out guns. She recognized that one was holding a taser. The other was a gun gun. Bang your dead gun. Thank you, she panted as she passed between them. Thank you, thank you.
0: That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to Bain intern Christopher Roccio and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. and a Greek chorus of merry warriors humming their happy bloody song as they cut like a scythe through the phalanx of Trojan defenders Along with a long-winded but deeply felt trumpet call of thanks and praise to Steve White, author of new Jason Thanu time travel novel, Soldiers Out of Time. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars.